Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the people involved in our public conversations, what they hold sacred, and what they've learned about dealing with difference. Every episode, I speak to someone with some kind of public voice, from novelists to journalists, archbishops to artists, politicians to philosophers, and ask them about the ideas that have shaped them, with the aim of helping us really understand where people are coming from, even if we disagree with them. In this episode, I spoke to Samir Rahim. Samir is Managing Editor for Art and Books at Prospect Magazine, and has been a judge for the Costa Poetry Book Prize, the Forward Prize for Poetry, and the Orwell Prize for Nonfiction. He's also the author of Aska and Zara, a novel about a young couple born into the same British Muslim community and their first year of marriage. We spoke about his religious childhood, loving his time studying English literature at Cambridge, his evolving Muslim faith, and why the true history of our religions will always be just out of reach. I really hope you enjoy listening. Samir, I would love to ask you uh, the big meaty question about your sacred values, what you hold sacred. And I've sort of given up trying to explain what I mean, um, because it does feel slightly like something beyond words and also because it gives you space to fill that word with kind of what it means to you. You've had a bit of warning what came to mind. Struggled with this one. Um, In the end, I came up with truthfulness. Um, I suppose not truth, because it seems a little bit too certain. Um, truthfulness maybe is an attempt to get at what we most think of as most important um, and what is real. Uh, funnily enough, as a novelist, um, you're writing fiction, so it's all made up. But the best fiction is the kind that really digs down into the deepest, um, most hidden, mysterious parts of yourself. Mm. Um, not quite truth, because I think truth is something that we should always aspire to um, move towards, to try and understand, try and get towards. Um, the love of truth is the faintest of all human passions, said A.E. Hausman. Wow. And that's, um, I think that's very true in some senses. Um, we're always trying to get towards it, but it's so easy to be lost under a sort of a welter of self-deception. Um, I was always thinking also about, um, you know, the idea of truth in the Quran is quite uh, interesting. Um, there's a there's a phrase that talks about how the truthful will be questioned about their truth, uh, and it refers to um, the prophets, so Abraham uh, and Jesus in uh, Islamic pantheon, um, and Muhammad as well. Um, even these most truthful of people will be questioned about their truth. And the idea that. Um, <laughs> the most perfected beings on earth, who, according to the Quran's, the- Quran's theology, uh, are also people who are, uh, are going to be questioned as well. Mm. And do you have an instinct about where that comes from in you? I don't know. I think most people have that. I could relate it to my own upbringing uh, in some ways. Um, perhaps it's to do with being Muslim, growing up with this idea of truth. Um I grew up in um, in London, in, in West London, in a rather boring suburb, um, and there were sort of multiple worlds that I lived in. I had the sort of world of school that everyone goes to and the world of television, which I watched a lot. Later on, the world of books. There was also this alternative life where I was educated in uh, studying Arabic and um, uh, studying the Quran. Tuesday evening was tafsir, exegesis. Um, uh, which I studied in, uh, with a lady in Harrow. Uh, Saturday was Arabic class in Ealing, uh, and Sunday uh, was uh, madrasa, basically Sunday school. 
um, in Harrow. Um, and uh, for me, it was all perfectly normal. Um, at the same time, there was a sense in which we were doing something that felt quite um, secretive or that people didn't really know what we were doing or anything about us. The madrasa, the Sunday school we had, was actually held in a, in a proper school that during the week was, was a, I think, a, a, a girls' school. And um, it was always tickled me, the fact that all these people who were going to the school wouldn't realise that on a Sunday uh, the landscape of the uh, school would be transformed with mm. lots of girls wearing hijabs and uh, boys wearing our uh, little skull caps uh, when we did the prayers and um, and the sense in which we were this sort of hidden yeah. world. Um, this was the 1990s where people didn't really have any interest in Muslims. Um, and you, your school wasn't a Muslim school, so you there was... It's, it sounds like it was different from your day to day life. Was it? No, quite yeah, mixed? no, I didn't go to Muslims. Went to a went to a grammar school mm-hmm. in um, in High Wycombe, which was quite an interesting mixed area. Um, quite a lot of Pakistani um, uh, students there, um, but again, people didn't really know anything about Islam or, or really think very much about it. Um, you look back on it as a sort of golden age in some ways where it wasn't exposed to uh, the idea of the public Muslim or having to represent yourself in some way. Mm. Even the word uh, for us going to madrasa on a Sunday was just something that you you did. Of course, post 9-11, even the word uh, madrasa can't be, can't be uh, mentioned on TV without saying someone else following it up with after attending one, he went to blow himself up or something like that. So even the word suddenly becomes this sort of slightly sinister, odd thing. Whilst for me, it's got a sort of homely um, and quite sort of comforting associations. That sort of double meaning of things I I find quite interesting. Yeah. And in the home, how did, uh, what were the ideas in the air there? Were your parents very devout? Were they politically involved? What was the kind of atmosphere in which the little Samir grew up in? Um, I'd say they were both devout and sort of relaxed at the same time, um, in the sense that we got a lot of freedom to do what we uh, uh, wanted to do, read what we wanted to read. Um, but, you know, it was definitely taken as, as read that, you know, prayers happen at a certain time. And um, you, my father was um, was two things. He was, he, was, he, was a, he was a physicist, he was a scientist, and he was also a preacher. Um, he moved to this country in 1962 from Zanzibar, which is a small island off the, the coast of East Africa. You may well know that, but um, I was standing in line the other day uh, at the bank and somebody was talking about the safari they were going on. And they said, oh, we're going to this place called Zanzibar. Never heard of it. Well, it was ruled by the British for many years um, uh, and the Omanis. Um, so, yeah, so he emerged from there, but there's not many places you can study physics um, in Zanzibar, a tiny place. So he moved to Portsmouth to do his A-levels. Uh, at that time, there was a revolution in Zanzibar, um, and which meant he never, uh, oh, he couldn't go back for uh, a long time. Wow. Um, so, in fact, we went back in 1999 and he showed me around um, all the places that he'd, he'd, he'd visited. Um, his father um, was uh, a scholar uh, and a preacher, as well as being uh, uh, a policeman and then a judge later on. So he was fluent in Arabic and Persian. He wrote a dictionary of the Quran. Um, he was also uh, you know, a loyal servant of the British Empire, um, and we were part of this sort of weird East African Indian community, which was a sort of um, intermediate class um, that uh, got certain benefits from being close to the British, hmm. um, which disappeared when the British left. Right. I feel like I want to, that's a whole other podcast we could talk about, uh, Zanzibar and um, 
a diaspora. Anyway, um, so you went on to study English at Cambridge and I... It almost feels like a bit of a cliche asking this question, but I was reading an article in the Times very recently still about how um, uh, basically non-white uh, students at Oxford and Cambridge still feel a huge amount of kind of cultural dislocation in lots of places. So kind of forgive me for asking the question, but I wanted to ask, how was your experience at Cambridge? And there's also, I think, some justification because the novel that we'll talk about, there's a character who goes to Cambridge and is uh, wrestling through lots of those themes of belonging and identity. I had a fantastic time at Cambridge. I absolutely loved it. Um, for me, it felt like emerging into another world. Um, I'd say by the time I was 16 or 17, I'd, I'd had a lot of religion in my life. And um, it wasn't as such that I made a conscious decision to abandon it. It was more like I was started to be interested in different things. And that was mainly, mainly English literature. And going to a place where everyone else was obsessed with English literature and wanted to talk about it and wanted to study it and think about it um, was, was a revelation for me. Um, I had also what, what, what I think could be euphemistically called a sheltered upbringing. So going to Cambridge was an eye-opening place for me. Of course, other people thought it was incredibly dead and square, um, and I'm sure it was in comparison to other universities. Um, but yeah, there's all the kinds of things that you have to negotiate. You have to decide um, where the limits of your own um, religious practice lie, whether you're still interested in that. I used to go and explore in the library for... Um, uh, certain texts which which weren't uh, freely available that I'd heard about. There was this um, uh, books which were you know revisionist histories of Islamic of Islamic past. Which I'm now imagining a kind of Hogwarts restricted section equivalent, <laughs> but I'm sure they were uh, yeah. only available there. Well, I got into it through uh, the Satanic Verses and Salman Rushdie, really it's like a gateway drug. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was funny funny with Rushdie because um, you know I very clearly remember the demonstrations against that, and although I don't think any of my family members went on them, I knew people who mm. who did, uh, and people who rung up radio stations to complain about him. So by the time I was 15 or 16, I was like, I really have to read this book. Um, and uh, and eventually I wrote a dissertation on it at, um, at, at Cambridge, trying to investigate the historical sources that Rushdie uses and the incidence of the Satanic Verses as a historical uh, fact or not, why Muslims believed that the incident of the Satanic Verses was true mm. for about 200 years, and then it suddenly faded from fashion. Um, and all those questions were bubbling away. Um, and uh, But mostly I was just, you know, wrestling with Milton and uh, Shakespeare like everyone else. Um this is quite self-indulgent, as regular listeners will know. I am also an English graduate and poetry lover. And I I wanted to ask about words, um, because you studied English literature and then you w went on to work for Oxford English Dictionaries, is that right? And then you've reviewed books and, and written your books. And underneath this podcast is a kind of theme around public conversation and public debates. And implicit in that is the words we use with each other in public and the way they form us. Tell me what... If you can, what is the pull towards spending your life with words and how do you think they've kind of shaped you? Well, my job, which was really a summer job at the OED, um, was going through um, the 2,000 or so words that derive from uh, Arabic and Persian and uh, checking and updating uh, the definitions. Um, that in itself was was quite fascinating because you, 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 all sorts of odd things come up. Um, Admiral apparently is from Turkish. Wow. And, so it's and, like and etymology, etymology, detective work, meanings. You know what? And you're digging into the past uh, uh, um, 
using a word to dig into the past. It's a sort of historical analysis. There was also a library there which was full of novels. Um, and um, you would uh, have to go through a novel and underline new words that had appeared in the language. Wow. Now, um, what counts as a new English word? Well, if the word was in italics in the novel, then it was identifying, identifying itself as a foreign word. Um, but if it wasn't in italics... Um, it was saying this is part of the English language. This mm. is part of English literature. The readers are going to understand it enough that we can just let it lie without explaining it. Exactly. Um, so uh, one of the words whose definition I worked on was wuzu, W-U-Z-U, um, which is um, the sort of uh, ablution that Muslims undertake before they uh, pray or touch the Quran, uh, usually. Um, and I wrote the definition for that, and I don't. I keep on checking, but it hasn't yet gone in because apparently it's still a foreign word for me. It was a very sort of common word uh, as I was growing up. So when I came to write my own novel, one thing I was very sure of was that I wasn't going to italicize any of the words that the characters used, um, which were completely normal to them, uh, because for me it wasn't a foreign word. For them, it wasn't a foreign word. Um, so maybe I can nudge the editors of the OED, and they can sort of. Um, um, <laughs> Resurrect that definition. And, and You've get- written a whole novel as a, as a piece of evidenced argument for your original employers. Look, that's one of the main motivations for for writing it. Yes, yeah, that is amazing. Um, there's so many threads I want to pick up, but uh, so tell me what 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 were you following uh, in that career trajectory? Kind of what what is the motivation for you to be um, yeah pursuing the jobs that you pursued? What is it that's um, animating you underneath? Well, I wanted to do something to do with literature um, because it's what I enjoyed. Um, And I wanted to do something that was instantaneously gratifying. Um, So writing a review, uh, which comes out the next week or the next couple of weeks, um, is a bit more... Uh, get more of an instant hit. The first meeting of the OED we had was said, well, the next edition is coming out in uh, 2037 oh or something. Word. So uh, now, of course, they have sort of online every quarter and all the rest of it. Um, and also sort of quite omnivorous. I just quite like new books, um, exploring different arenas, uh, getting into different historical periods. I started off reviewing a lot of fiction and I do less of that now and I tend to do more ideas Middle Eastern history and, and all the rest of it. My 20s, I sort of, you know, as I said, I'd had kind of enough of Middle Eastern-y, Islamic, Indian-y stuff. And I was really exploring the English side of my identity and the, the, the great history of English literature. And, and that was mo- what I was most interested in. When I turned 30, as as happens with these things, they, they stay dormant for a while and, and then they come back. Um, I started to... Um, really, people start questioning you about things. Mm. Um you know, I worked at the Daily Telegraph, um, and one of one, maybe two Muslims in the entire office. So when questions arise, you get asked about them. Uh, people have very firm opinions about things which you sort of think aren't true, and you think, but you don't quite know the answer. Mm. So it's a motivation for you to go to the library and uh, find things out. And uh, I discovered that there was another way of approaching religion and religious culture than the one that I'd been brought up with, um, something that was a little bit more expansive. You know, there's an artistic tradition, there's a sort of literary tradition, again, bringing together the threads uh, of what I've been uh, examining. It always feels almost as private as asking someone about their sex life, so forgive me. But through that time 
what did your kind of lived experience of Islam look like? Were you were you practicing? Were you, was it more of a kind of internal reflecting on what you believed and why? It was always there. Uh, I'd say the volume was was turned down mm. a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I'd say that uh, I don't ever say that I ever quite lost uh, my faith, but I've certainly sort of it's been revivified. But I've I've come to a different place. Mm. Um, than you know, I could never return to. Um, uh, I suppose not even you know. It was a world. I look at my teenage world a little bit like um, certain people regard the pre-Reformation past. Uh, it, you know, there's a sort of sense that this was a pre-Lapsarian period where no one could even uh, think of being an atheist um, because it was just the air that you breathed. It was just always there. And then only when people started um, doubting did true belief come uh, through and you had to sort of attach yourself to something. Um, I'm sure that's got a, its own kind of mythical version as well. But I, I think for me... Um, uh, I get a lot of sustenance from looking at how other Muslims in history have interpreted their faith um, and how they're trying to interpret it now, particularly in the artistic and, and, and literary realms. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your novel. And have you always been writing fiction on the side? How did it come about? Um, I've been writing this book for 10 years, and it's quite a short book. So um, that tells you that I'm very slow. Um, but also it tells me that... Um, I needed to work out who I was in some ways before I could actually write this book. I needed to go through some of the experiences that the uh, that the characters had. When I started writing this book, um, uh, I was single, um, and by the time I uh, ended it, I was married. Um, so perhaps you know the sort of marriage scenes in there were helped. Although I hasten, my wife would hasten to want me to add very quickly that um, uh, this isn't about us at all. Um, also, I started writing this in my late twenties, and the characters there were you know, 18, 19 and 21, mm. 22. Um, and I'm 10 years older now, so I even have a very, it feels very distant um, in some ways. Yeah, I'd always wanted to, to write fiction. Um, I was, my, my uh, reviewing life or uh, writing about other books, uh, the I is never present for me. Uh, I'm not a confessional writer in my public works, particularly. Um and I felt that there was an awful lot that I wanted to say and that could be said and wasn't really being said. And I could just pour all of that um, into uh, a novel because you can give characters opinions that you sort of had or you maybe had at one point and then gave other characters the opposing point of view and, and enter into a, into a dialogue without having to be held account for any of it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to dive into some of the themes in it. But first I want to ask about writing about faith in general because the novel is, is in some ways it's not about religion at all, it's about marriage, it's about two people, but they're embedded in a community and one of the points of tensions between them is their different ways of practising Islam and their different self-understandings. And I have this kind of ongoing, you know, background argument with myself about why it's so difficult to write about Christianity in novels, particularly now when you had a kind of golden age I guess, although it probably didn't feel like that and was spread very spread out with kind of big Russian novelists and themes coming through. But in the 20th century, it all gets a bit, you know, quiet. <laughs> um, and I always think of Graham Greene and Marilyn Robinson and then you sort of run out. <laughs> um, and I'm sure there's others I haven't discovered, but I go round and round in this. Is it that you just can't F the ineffable? You know, Is it that the experience of encounter with the transcendent is so... Um, internal that it is one of the things that words can't 
hold. But then I feel like human love or parenting or various other experiences are fairly transcendent as well. And there's lots written about those. So uh, tell me, is there a great tradition of Islamic novels uh, that you were drawing on? And how did you find the experience of at least peripherally writing about faith? Well, that's that's an interesting question. So I'd say there's a lot of uh, religion in the book. Um, there's not that much about God. Um, and perhaps that's because of the difficulties that you just uh, described. Religion, I find, in a way, is perfectly suited to uh, treatment in a novel because um, uh, it's to do with the odd little practices people have. It's to do with texts that people can draw on. So Oscar in the book is constantly thinking about, um, you know, stories about the prophet's life um, that um, he can draw on. I suppose, uh, taking your question back to front, what is the original literary nature of Islam? So you've got the Quran, which most people know about, you know, uh, revealed to the prophet, you know, set in stone. Then you have all the interpretations um, uh, of it. But also you have all these stories about the prophet's life. Um mainly formulated um, either uh, by storytellers who knew something about him, you know, quite a few years after he died, um, but also for legal purposes, uh, little stories, you know, what did the prophet do in this situation? So somebody would ask him and then it was recorded down. Um, there's, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of these stories, often they're mutually contradictory. Um, what is actually true and what is not true is uh, a point of contention, both for Muslims and for sort of modern uh, scholars. Um, Jesus, I think it's fair to say, didn't say very much. It's pretty much all there. Uh, but Muhammad said so much. Mm. Um, and so for me, it's a, a strength to religion because it it shows the flexibility you can carve a path you can carve a, a path of a muhammad as it were as a, as a model that can say almost anything not quite anything but almost anything um so uh so Oscar certainly who's sort of the more um uh, traditionally religious of the two will certainly thinks it's more important um when he's you know looking for guidance on marriage or you know what to do on your wedding night um he explores these uh, hadith these stories about the prophet's life and of course if you look it up um as you can do now very easily there are there are you know advice about how to behave on your wedding night mm. and what to do and I I took deliberately the um uh for me the most entertaining and outre stories about um um, about that just because I felt like, well, they exist, yeah. so why can't I use them? Yeah. Um, uh, yes, in terms of uh, Muslim novelists, uh, I mean, poetry has been really the big um, uh, literary tradition in the Islamic world, and mainly um, in the sort of Persian and Indo-Persian world. Um, Saadi uh, is a 11th century Persian writer. Well, these wonderful um uh, sort of folk tales uh, drawing on prophetic stories and um, other traditions. Rumi, of course, um, you know, well known in the West for his um, uh, uh, sort of uh, slightly simplified version, you might say. But the Masnavi, which is his great text, is just a collection of stories, mm. really. Um, again, about prophets and jinns is a bit like the Arabian Nights, but with the sort of religious tinge. In the 20th century, running forward, you know, great novelists like Ahmad Ali, um, who um, wrote, I think, in the 30s and 40s, um, he was a, an Indian and then later Pakistani writer, wrote a book called Twilight in Delhi. Um, that was a real sort of um, model for me. But, you know, as my editor told me when I has it in the book, um, uh, this is really in formal style uh, an English comedy. Hmm. It just happens to be that the characters are Muslim. Yeah. 
No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Zara, who is, forgive me, Zara? Zara, I now because you said you pronounced it two ways in the book. I've now got stuff. Well, that's interesting, isn't yeah. it? So Zara or Zahra, yeah. um, and uh, different audiences say different things. And yeah. of course, how she actually pronounces her own name, we don't depends, know. You know, yeah. so some people call her. She, I think, she probably calls herself anglicise herself to Zara. Okay. But people who wanted to be who want to be more sort of accurately Arabic will call yeah. her Zahra. Right. But of course, the third layer of that is that that's a sort of Arabization of her name. Right. Um, and in fact, the closer pronunciation to where my, uh, you know, her Indian and parents and grandparents would be more Zara. Okay. So the hard H is for the sort of slightly pretentious Arabized uh, uh, Muslim who who thinks uh, things are only authentic if they're actually Arab. Okay. Um, so yeah. Okay. Well, uh, then I feel much better about tri- so tripping the, the answer over to that it. Is, is is anything you okay. want really. <laughs> the character whose name begins with a Z um, goes. Uh, uh, we we kind of meet her when she's. Um, graduated from Cambridge, but a lot of her kind of self-reflection seems to be this sen- this tension she feels between um, the kind of belonging of her community. And I th- it feels like that's one of the um, things that draw her- draws her to ask her, that he is a sense of home, a sense of someone who understands everything um, that she's grown up with. And then on the other hand, at Cambridge, this kind of pull of a cosmopolitan um, globalised intellectual milieu and uh, this sense of the thing that really stuck with me is she talks about having to kind of argue with the the older white male Don at Cambridge, almost about identity in Islam through the lens of Shakespeare. And Askar says, uh, Shakespeare is their Quran. And, you know, that, it feels so right that there is something sacred in that intellectual milieu. It's just not the Bible or the Quran, or maybe it's a bit the Bible and a bit the Quran, but it's mainly Shakespeare. Um, and all the way through the book, you see this tension between Zara's sense of She's the world has been opened up to her, but she also feels destabilized by that and the pull towards home and belonging and wanting to call her husband out of it, kind of up to her level, but then realizing as time goes on that maybe she's lost something. I'm just terribly cheesy question, but how autobiographical is that struggle and where are you now with it? Assuming that it is, I answer my own question. Well, that specific incident you talk about with um, uh, with Shakespeare uh, is autobiographical. So I think, it, so I gave her that experience that I had when I went for my interview uh, at Cambridge. So I was trying to work out, you know, what would be the most appealing thing um, for someone and, and uh, who interviewed me to, to think about. And I went for one interview um, where the person interviewing me didn't really want to talk about Shakespeare or literature at all. They just wanted to talk about who I was and my identity and uh, and all the rest of it, which I found a little bit discomforting in some ways. Um, was it a kind of do you fit here vibe? No, it was more like, oh, it must be terribly difficult for you kind of vibe, which I find uh, quite patronising. But there was a little other part of me, and that part of me I gave to uh, Zara, which is the... the quite cynical sense of, well, I mean, how am I able to explain this? And um, I had memorised a few passages uh, of Shakespeare, and one was um, uh, Sherlock's speech, um, uh, famous speech, and and I recited it for him, and I could just see him sort of saying, yes, he gets it, you know, because he gets it because, you know, he's going to challenge us, but not too much. You know, we can do it through the medium of that. And and suppose I found that she, um, uh, I gave gave it to her. Um, She's not studying English, so I had to sort of do a bit of... um, 
uh, a bit of maintenance on the plot in that way. So I made her play uh, Jessica, who is Shylock's daughter uh, in The Merchant, Merchant of Venice, and sort of the speech absorbed it. Of course, Jessica is one of those figures who um, abandons her faith to go and marry a Christian, and that, that, so there's a parallel there. Um, so, so yes, I loved Shakespeare, but it's also great literature can be in this sort of funny way instrumentalized to become a sort of um, an embodiment of uh, liberal values that we can all uh, we can all agree on. And I suppose I wanted to take her down a peg or two um, because she comes to the limits of what she feels she can do, mm. and people push themselves to a certain point and they realize you know they will do some kind of violation to themselves if they if they push further than that mm. um and i think the word violation is 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 necessary there so in in this sense it's more of a sort of romantic or sexual encounter which is ambiguous and doesn't go as she uh, uh wishes um and I feel at that point she feels like she has to retreat back into herself and makes mm. a quite hasty decision to um, uh, to marry Oscar. She does it because she likes him, but also she feels like he's going to be a sort of audience for her. She's going to be performing her own um, uh, her own Englishness to him, mm. um, and she doesn't quite respect him or treat him as well as she should. And that's partly why the marriage um, takes a takes a bad turn. Yeah. I'm kind of grasping, I can't frame it very well into a question, but I'm grasping towards this sense of one of the threads we set around a lot is tribalism and belonging and how we we make those encounters with people who we don't naturally feel at home with more humane and productive and fruitful rather than just continually being kind of kicked into these fight or flight defensive mechanisms that we're seeing kind of played out on mass in society. And one of the things that we do at Theos is we feel like we are translators across tribes often. And I spent, you know, deliberately much more time talking to people who aren't Christians um, than I do Christians and find myself doing some of what Zara does, that kind of uh, thinking, right, who is my audience? What do they need to know about me in order to trust me enough? You know, what are the signifiers? I used to do all the time on Thought for the Day. I stopped doing Thought for the Day for various reasons, but for a while I did it and it felt like I need to say something smart that the audience doesn't already know or uh, that they're not expecting from a religious person. So they go, oh, yeah, it's just sensible. And then, and then I need to do something that's kind of emotionally resonant. And then maybe people will trust me enough that what I'm going to say about theology isn't complete nonsense. But if you, if you don't do the groundwork, then people will switch you off immediately. But I do... I do feel that tension sometimes, and I think everyone does, whose part of their calling is to cross boundaries or to be away from their tribe of what's kind of appropriate chameleon, chameleoning and what's undermining of identity and that, um, that pull back and forth. It feels to me like Zara, it's very unresolved for her at the end. Um, do, you, do you get a sense of where the, where the story goes afterwards? Well, she's perpetually translating herself and that's what we, as a British Muslim, you sort of have to do, particularly mm. in the public space. Um, you know, because you've got two things. One, you, you know, you've got this thing called religion, which um, people are like, oh, well, what's that thing? You know? Plus, then you've got this, you know, it's Islam. So it's just this freighted other with all the kind of um, tensions that that comes with. And I suppose in this book, I wanted to try and um, give people a glimpse of some of the internal debates that mm. people have. Yeah. So actually, I feel that this book, um, 
I try. It's it's not trying to explain out in the same way. Um, uh, and actually, there's a lot of explanations I took out of the book, and I said people will just need to um, get on with it for themselves because Muslims themselves are self conflicted about these mm. things. There's one scene which I think is maybe emblematic towards the beginning, where um, Oscar and Zara are on their honeymoon, and they're in the Cordoba Cathedral, or is it a mosque? Um, and it's this wonderful space where, um, but again, very, very tense. So it's it's been a cathedral for 800 years, and it's a very impressive building. And before then, it was a mosque, and it still has um, the Umayyad red and white banded palm tree uh, columns in there. It's incredibly beautiful, but it's also very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they go there, they have very different reactions to it. And for Oscar, um, you know, the legacy of Muslim Spain and the glories of it and, uh, and all the rest of it become this sort of point of identity. So he can project his own discomfort with being in, in Britain and being a British Muslim um, onto this historical conflict that existed hundreds of years ago. Um, and in a way, that's a sort of seed of extremism in the sense that if you try and project your own um, difficulties onto this sort of trans-historical wealth, we've been oppressed for hundreds of years, blah, blah, blah. Zara takes a slightly different view. She says, well, it is just sort of history. You know, there's, um, and, you know, well, how did these places become Muslim in the first place? Something must have happened. What was that? Um, you know, the, the history of the world is one of invasions and, uh, and taking things apart and people uh, using other people's buildings. Um, and why I wanted to set the scene there is because, in a sense, they are both cathedrals and mosques at the same time. You know, they are, um, and to allow the space to be both, to to feed both sides of themselves, I think is the absolutely necessary part. Because if you try and cut one off, mm. if you try and just to try and define it in one way, um, you, everything else will get too sort of clouded and congested. There'll be a sort of self-denying. And I firmly believe that um, when you cut yourself off from um, your spiritual, intellectual uh, uh, roots and cultural roots um, when you don't make the effort to explore the fact that, yes, there's Shakespeare, but there's also um, um, great literature in the Islamic tradition. Um, there are great stories. There's a lot of sustenance there. Um, then that leads to the curdling uh, of a tradition into an identity. Uh, it then becomes a weapon to be wielded. It then becomes something that you support rather than something that you explore and question and add to and subtract and, and all the rest of it. Um, so um, it's unresolved at the end for, for Zara um, and indeed in some ways for Oscar as well. Um, but I think it's it's good that it's not resolved because we're perpetually in conversation about these things. Mm. Feels the older I get, the more the kind of both and thinking as a just part of growing up feels like learning to live in those tensions and learning to find kind of internal stability while you balance on all these um, fault lines, really. And that, yeah, the resisting the urge of certainty and hermetically sealed identities and, um, yeah, something I'm still working on. Um, tell me a little bit about The Shadow of the Scroll, uh, this essay that you wrote about uh, Islam's origins, um, because it's interesting. You've spoken to Tom Holland and I've spoken to Tom Holland here, uh, who is this figure who is uh, become emblematic, but it's much uh, it's only of a much broader kind of scholarly um, 
movement around looking at how the Quran came together and the kind of early um, historical record around Islam. And you've written very carefully and very thoughtfully, just kind of laying out where the debate is, um, but also kind of broadly supportive of people like Tom and others um, saying using kind of modern historical techniques or archaeology or whatever is is appropriate to explore the origins of Islam is kind of valid and should be welcomed by Muslims. Um, I remember the kind of furore around um, the program coming out on Channel 4. I'd love to just hear your journey with it and where you think that conversation around Islam and Islam's origins and how it plays into the fact we're in quite a moment where it feels like Islamophobia is on the rise and there's always this instinct to kind of be protective because things can be put into the wrong hands and used in the wrong way and, and cause harm. Just, I've just laid out a load of tensions that I'm sure you spend years thinking about. So where did it solve me? Probably back at Cambridge um, when I should have been doing my proper work. I was um, looking at a book called Hagarism uh, by Patricia Crone uh, and Michael Cook, which was published, I think, in the mid-70s, around the time that Edward Said's Orientalism came out, actually, the interesting parallel texts. Um, and that book was a sort of uh, a polemic in many ways, but it exploded some of the more comfortable assumptions within the Western Academy, forget about the Muslim world, about the historicity uh, of uh, the Prophet's life. Um, and also, they didn't quite touch on it there, but implicitly uh, the Quran. So, in a way, there is a parallel to what happened in the mid-19th century and the search for the historical Jesus and the, that movement and, you know, what did Jesus actually say? Can we submit kind this textual to… textual criticism. Textual criticism. What is the actual evidence? Um, uh, and it's a bringing to bear of uh, modern sort of scientific or quasi-scientific methods. Um, now, two interesting things came out of that. So let's take the Quran, first of all. So the idea that the Quran was uh, a melange put together 200 years after the Prophet's death and various Christian hymns uh, was a theory put forward uh, in the 1970s. Um, since then, um, discovery of uh, uh, Quranic texts, um, in fact, in the Sana Mosque in Yemen, in a bunch of Hessian sacks, um, which have been dated to, you know, 650 to 670 with tiny variants uh, on the text that we have now, but really nothing especially mm. significant. So it kind of parallel to if people know about the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery, yeah. a sense in which, oh, wow, things are a lot older and a lot more accurate than we thought they were. Yeah, and the, the Quran certainly s definitely seems to have been fixed in something like its uh, uh, final form within about 20 years of the 20 or 30 years of the, of the Prophet's death. And in fact, if you read it as a book, you can understand that um, it feels like a book that, um, uh, how can I put it, if they'd waited 100 or 200 years, it would have been a lot easier to understand. They would have translated it into their, uh, into the idiom um, uh, of uh, later years. Uh, its mystery and its sacredness is something, is, is to do with its, the difficulties of understanding what it actually means. Um, the stories about the prophet's life are something something slightly different. And I think um, Muslims have always been sceptical about stories of the Prophet's life. Um, uh, one of the jobs of these uh, collectors of hadith uh, about 200 years, 150, 200 years after the Prophet's death was to go around on finding all these stories about him and what are true, what is not true. And they, they developed this science where it'd be like, well, there's an oral tradition which was then told to this person, told to this person and told to this person. 
And so modern scholars are like, well, of course, that doesn't really um, add up. And what we need to do is look at things like coins and epi- epigraphs. And um, uh, and I think this is a fascinating subject, really. And why it's interesting is um, the question that Tom Holland asks and other historians ask is why so little was written down about the prophet in the earliest years. If he was this incredibly important person, why didn't they immediately write things down? Um the reason, I think, was because there was a Quran, and in the Quran, um, addressed to the Prophet, it keeps on reiterating that you know you are a mere warner, you are a person, you are your life is not to be elevated mm. into um, uh, a miracle, a miracle mm. worker, um, and there was a lot of suspicion about stories of the Prophet uh, because they didn't want to create another gospel. But people being people, they desperately wanted to know about the prophet's life. And so when people came to write stories about them, they used the models of the prophets uh, that came before him to um, develop stories. Now, how much is true and how much is untrue, how much was made up by people and how much was uh, not, is uh, a question that I think is almost impossible to answer. I have a final question, which is um, I was feel odd just picking one thing to ask people because they have multiple layered identities. But um, as we've spoken a lot about Islam, um, as someone who thinks about Islam, what would you like in public conversations, those who are not Muslim, to understand better or to do or stop doing? And the same for Muslims. Are there things that they do in public debates or public conversations that you think, yes, more of that, or please stop doing that? Um, Well, I was reading um, John Henry Newman's Present Position of Catholics in England uh, bedtime reading. Uh, I'm sure it is for you as well. Um, but it's a fascinating book because he, he he's defending Catholicism against what he describes as you know the farrago of uh, misunderstandings. Um, people read one book, maybe two books about Islam. They've got it. They understand mm-hmm. it. Uh, and it was, he was talking about Catholicism in that sense. But it's the same. It's the same thing now. I mean, I would just ask people not to believe the first thing that somebody. Uh, who presents himself as a community leader or representative or Muslim says, I would ask them not to just read one book or two books or five books or even 10 books, but to read a lot more than that. Um, I would ask people not to be um, so quick um, in their assumptions uh, about what words mean and how that means. Um, you know, um, madrasa doesn't necessarily mean what you think it it's means. It's not terrorist school. Fatwa doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> a legal opinion, um, which may, but in most cases has nothing to do with sentences of uh, sentences of death. Um, as for Muslims, I don't know. I mean, we are already having all these conversations, but we tend to have them in private um, because the thought is that if we expose them to public view, then look, we've got to keep a united front because we're under pressure and people, people are always... Um, uh, uh, asking us questions, and then we need to have settled answers to them. I don't think being afraid of being questioning, Mm. uh, not being afraid of having a sense of humour about ourselves. There's something quite humorous about the British Muslim uh, uh, situation, which I try and exploit, hopefully in good taste in the book. Um, The idea that, uh, you know, um, you're this sort of weird hybrid kind of person um, it's fine. It's fine to be that because we always were hybrids in some ways at some point. Mm. Um, and yeah, and I, I would, I would ask to, I would ask. Um, you know, there's a rich heritage from 
632 to 2019. And that is part of your uh, identity and interpretation as well. And if you think you're going back to the originary points, if you think you can come up with a literal interpretation, there is no such thing as a literal interpretation. You're just using somebody else's um, uh, interpretation before you. Um, And um, yeah, we live in modernity and we are shaped as as much by that as as by anything. But there's a lot of richness in the pre-modern Islamic past. And that's what I would I would urge others to explore. Samir Rahim, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.